Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Lauren Juliet Ings, who is an assistant instructor with Staccato School of Defense and is also a circus performer, a burlesque dancer, and an actor. You can find her on Instagram at La Petite Morticia, L-A-P-E-T-I-T-E-M-O-R-T-I-C-I-A. Um, I should perhaps possibly warn the more straight-laced among you that that Instagram, it's, it's, it's very tasteful, but not necessarily something you want your boss to look over your shoulder and see you looking at. <clears throat> so <laughs> with, that, with that slight disclaimer, Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, so, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, currently, I am in Sydney, Australia. Uh, so, as my friends call it, the upside down. Okay. Uh, yes, and we, we met there um, about just over a year ago now when I was teaching a seminar for the Sagata School of Defence in Sydney. Um, I understand you're an assistant instructor there, is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So I'm an assistant instructor specifically for Paul Wagner. Okay. Um, now, on your, um, certainly on your Facebook page and elsewhere, you describe yourself as a performer of the weird and wonderful. What exactly does that entail? Well, I am very unconventional pretty much in everything I do in life. Um, this ranges in everything from the way that I actually do teach to the things that I perform. Um, I have a very unusual sense of humor. I'm occasionally a little bit macabre. Uh, so sometimes I will put that into my performances. Um, as you might be able to tell from my performance name, it's a pun. Um, so I don't take anything in life quite too seriously. And yeah, so last year I did a performance that was inspired by Elizabeth Bathory. Um, so the blood countess, as she is known. Um, so she was allegedly bathed in the blood of virgins to keep her young and beautiful. Um, so I went ah, on stage okay. in full, full crinoline and skirt and everything to do a performance. Um, and I've got a new show coming up in, oh, I actually debut it in a couple of days now, uh, where I'm actually using a longsword in a burlesque routine. So definitely not something you'd see every day. So I think that's a little bit weird and wonderful. So uh, I like to oh, think sure. a, little bit, a little bit of that in any performance. But there was no bath of blood in that Elizabeth Bathory routine. Not a bath, but that's mostly because I couldn't get a prop and then get one to the venue kind of thing. I did have a small glass that I had and I just used the glass to help, you know, with any kind of addition of blood to oneself. <laughs> okay. Um, is that routine on video anywhere? Oh, it is. Um Parts of it are on Instagram. Um, I know that it's probably somewhere else. I can't remember if I ended up sticking it on YouTube or not. Um, but, yeah, if you scroll back to, like, pretty much the very beginning of my Instagram, there's definitely bits of my uh, routine for that one on there. But that was also about you, a year ago. Okay, if you, if you put it on um, YouTube, drop me a link and I'll put it in the show notes and people with a um, sort of bloodthirsty frame of mind can go and have a look. Will do. Okay, so um, 
how did you get into the circus stuff and the burlesque stuff? How, how does one uh, go about that? Uh, very different stories. Um, okay. It weird, weirdly all came together. I was actually doing a modeling job um, and one of the other models was doing some circus stuff and he invited me to come along to a training session one day. And I did, and I ended up doing some partner-based circus stuff that way because I ended up meeting the person that I use for my base for any partner tricks, um, my friend Ben, he's lovely. And yeah, I just really got into, you know, doing weird stuff. Like I'd stand on his shoulders and he'd walk around or all kinds of interesting like half flips over people or into weird positions and uh, balancing acts. And it was just really interesting. So I've always kind of enjoyed circusy stuff. I've always been quite uh, mobile. Uh, I can never tell if a certain thing I can do that's bendy is normal or not. I always have to ask friends because some of my limitations are normal. Some of my limitations are not. And it's always a fun guessing game trying to work out which one's which. But um, okay. a little a little while back, uh, it'd be about three years ago, I decided to do burlesque. I've always loved dance, but I suck at it. So <laughs> uh, because I had a circus background, I'd done some fire tracing and some like circus fire stuff. And I thought this would be a great way to get into doing dance things because there was a fire burlesque class. And I thought, well, I know I'm confident with one out of those two things. So we'll start with that. And if I suck at the dance, no one will pay attention because there's fire, which is pretty much true. That's how that worked. Um, but I started practicing more uh, over the last couple of years. And so... Uh, it was it was just something that I first started doing because I've always had a love of dance and I never kind of knew how to get into it. I was used to be like really self-conscious about the way I dance. So it was to help me build up confidence doing something that I already knew. So it wasn't even necessarily for the burlesque part, which is because I want to do dancey things, but I'm scared. And that was a nice way to do it. And then at my first burlesque performance ever, I saw more circusy things I'd never done. Uh, so I do lira, which is a hoop that's suspended from the ceiling. So you'll see it in things like Cirque du Soleil. Um, it's quite often it's just a big, looks like a hula hoop suspended from the ceiling, but it's not. Yeah, my my cousin is a uh, trapeze artist, and that's sort of her specialty. Yes, no, it's fantastic. It was the first time I ever saw it performed. Was at my first kind of burlesque show uh, that I did a small thing at, and. They weren't even particularly doing anything hard, but I just saw it and went, that is something I need to try. Um, so that's actually the thing that I do most regularly is I'll do Lyra. Um, I train in that. Um, and it's just been how do you, wonderful. <laughs> how do you train for it? Um, I do go to classes for it, but they you can go into free time and do things. Um, it's interesting because it... For, for training for it, obviously there are things you can do to help you build up strength. So for a while, I actually had a personal trainer because there were certain techniques I just couldn't pull off because I didn't have the upper body strength for it because I am quite petite. Um, so yes, I am a whole like five, six, maybe five, seven, if I really, really stretch myself tall. Um, and yeah, at the moment, I think I'm like 56 kilos on a heavy day. Uh, that's if I've eaten a whole lot of pizza. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite small. 
that, that's so, an advantage for anything anything sort of trapezi out of thought. Yes, the being light is fantastic. The not having upper body strength is awful because then I've got to lift like the fifty kilo dead weight up, which is awful. Um, but yeah, it was so I started build muscle for that. I used to be Staccato's token uh, girl for like, look, you don't need to have massive muscles or anything to be able to do sword. Look at Lauren. Then I started to put on muscle, so we can't use that anymore. Uh, but it was. <laughs> But it's one of those ones where I'm like, I swear, these are from other things. They're not from sword because, yeah, I'm like, swords aren't super heavy. You don't need massive muscles to wield them, I promise. Yeah, and, you know, I've always thought that there's a big disadvantage when learning martial arts if you are naturally big and strong because weight and strength are usually an advantage in a fight. Then there's, there's less kind of necessity and incentive to get really skilled because you can sort of, you can get away with it because you've got the yeah. strength to make up for it. I feel like so, a lot of tall people do that in general. I think it, specifically within humor, that becomes a thing where often when tall people start, they realize, oh, I can outreach everybody. So at first, they don't necessarily care as much about how good their technique is because they're like, I can just hit them. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Watch, then, watching the blood. Meet, yeah, I, I have a friend in, in Seattle who is like, He's about six foot seven and built like a brick shit house and is <laughs> perhaps the most skilled martial artist I know. So for some somehow he's managed to overcome the huge disadvantage of having massive natural advantages and still gotten ridiculously <laughs> skilled. And it's like I I yeah, I I don't know how to deal with something like that. No, it's like one of those ones that must take uh, what I would consider a lot of like self-control to make sure you don't just go, well, I'm going to go in like a bull in a china shop. Right. Uh, and so and I think it takes a lot of conscious, yeah. yeah, it takes a lot of conscious effort, I think, to train yourself to not go full bore all the time when you, you know you could just easily, you know, just swap people like flies. Sure. So um, how did you get started with the swords? So, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a medieval fair. And it's quite normal in Sydney for at the medieval fairs, the schools to do a demonstration. Um, it's just something that they like to do to promote the school, obviously. And they had a little stall and I'd seen Staccata do one or two kind of one of these fairs before. And I thought they were interesting. And I thought I'd actually walk up and have a closer look because I'd kind of just watch the demonstrations and I'm like, oh, that was cool and keep going about my day. I actually went to the stall and I was having a look. And um, Paul hands me a longsword. That's all he did. He literally went, hold this. Yeah. Yes. Paul Wagner just literally holds out a longsword to me, tip down, and goes, hold this. And me, being ever dutiful, just held it because he told me to. I literally looked up at him and said, oh, no, but now I want to do this. And he went, that's the point. And honestly, <laughs> the easiest selling yeah, of anybody into this of all time. Yes, no, it was, it worked. I'll tell you what, um, I think from that point, that's when I knew that we were going to get along famously. Um, it wasn't my first time doing anything sorty though. My dad is also weirdly into HEMA stuff, though I didn't know that's what it was at the time. So little like 12-year-old Lauren was sitting there doing some real basic cuts at one point. Uh, but then I stopped when I got a little bit older because it was just wasn't the dumb thing for a teenage girl, uh, I thought. Um yeah, it's funny. I have daughters, and when they were very little, they would do sword stuff with me yeah. just because, you know, playing with daddy was always cool. Uh, but by the time they were about six or seven, they just had no interest in swords at all. 
So well, they haven't really the done anything. Like thing that. that dad does. That's why. Well, exactly. I guess. Yeah. It's you know, it's by definition not cool because their father does it. I guess. That's okay. Um, I'm I'm bringing the cool back. It's fine. I've got this handle. Specifically, <laughs> I I specifically love 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 teaching uh, younger female students. They just it brings me like a weird amount of joy. Um, I have learned that they also deal with my weirdness very well. Uh, because I think for a lot of them, they're like, oh, my God, I wish I could be as, like, open about and love something this much. And it's one of those ones of they, I think they always feel a little bit nervous coming into a martial arts place, especially when it was dominated in general by a lot of men who are either, like, taller or older or more muscly. Then you see me just, like, skip up to them and be like, today we're going to learn how to cut people like a pizza. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think it kind of just you know, helps with any kind of fears that they may have about how this is going to go. Sure. I, like the whole point of martial arts training really is, is it teaches you to deal with fear. And, yes. And it gives you a way of sort of gradually edging into the dangerous things, the things that you're frightened of. Yeah. Um, I think it's a fabulous way to build on so many different things in your life, but I do love the idea of like helping push your own boundaries in a setting that's like comfortable where people always have the opportunity if they want to, to be like, no, actually I don't want to do this. Um, but to always give them as ample opportunity to be able to do that as much as they want. And you'll find sometimes with like gentle coaxing people at, who at first say no, will then be like, okay, we'll, we'll do one and we see how we go. Or you'll give them alternatives. So I find a lot of people, uh, when they first start bouting, get uh, quite shy around it because obviously they're like, well, I'm trying to hit somebody and somebody's trying to hit me. And if they don't have a prior martial arts background, it's a bit intimidating. Mm-hmm. So I will do things like we call it matrix speed. It's basically just going really, really slow, like as slow as you can pretty much go. And it lets them have the time so that way they can think about what parry they're going to do or the footwork or other stuff that they're worried that they might not have the muscle memory for yet that they're worried. And it shows them that like quite often I let them pick the speed. So if they start slow, you'll notice they'll start getting faster, obviously, once they realize what they're doing. And so then I'll match their speed. So that way eventually we end up usually by the end of one or two fights going at normal speed, but it's I've allowed them to pick the tempo. And so I've allowed them to like kind of push their own boundaries with what they think they feel safe with and what they now do feel safe with in like a very comfortable way because I refer to all my students as sword babies and some of them hate it with a burning passion. <laughs> no, I had feedback the other day. One of them actually really despises it, um, but I don't okay. care. <laughs> um, they're, all, they're not forced to train with me or the training with me. I always say anybody who wants to, please come to this part of the room or come outside with me and we'll do stuff there. No one's ever forced to work with me. So if they don't like it, then I presume they will either just put up with it because they like the training or they'll just go train with the rest of the class. They have options. So I refer to myself as sword mum. That's why I call them sword babies. Um, okay. Yes. So I know so, it's a dick so you, No, no, no. It, um, like, I think I think it was Kaya Sadowski put it like this in her book, Fear is the Mind Killer. And Kaya was on the show. I think she's like episode four or five. Um she puts it like you need to create a psychologically safe space for people to do physically dangerous things and a physically safe space for people to do psychologically dangerous things. And for a lot of people, fencing appears to be physically dangerous, but the real risk is risk 
is psychological. It's it's they're worried about being humiliated or worried about hurting somebody or so the fear they're not necessarily frightened of being injured. They're more usually frightened of being humiliated or of injuring yeah. somebody else, I think. Yeah, so, no, I, I find that a lot. So if I think that's one of the reasons why I have like an overly peppy it's not quite persona, but it's like a way that I present myself to students. Um, because I like to make them feel like that. Maybe that's why I'm still with mom so much, um, because I'll sit there. Like, I will um, gladly let them like let them talk to me about anything and everything, whether or not it's relevant to class. Um, one of the students before was sitting out on the side, and I just, like, casually struck up a conversation, was talking about stuff because they weren't fighting. And I always tell my students, because I lead the warm-ups, um, if they have any, like, limitations to let me know and let whoever their partner is know and um it was really nice because one of them actually confided in with me that they had changed antidepressants and that was affecting their ability to fight uh that, which is okay. why they were out and because i had created that like safe space it meant that i was like oh cool so you don't want to fight the other people did you just want to do some drills with me or did you just want to sit here and watch and learn from watching like mm-hmm. creating that like i don't know Little space, I think, helps. And I always get so happy when they tell me things like, um, I am very loud about anything with me that doesn't come across as normal. So um, I am queer. So I am part of the LGBT community. So um, all throughout the month of June, I wear rainbow eyeshadow up to my eyebrows. So everybody who <laughs> class or walks past class or anybody yeah. who's on my way to class will know. And I feel like that's helpful as well. Um, I actually brought up because... Uh, Staccato has been around for a couple decades now that we kind of needed to update the website. So I very uh, gently reminded um, some of the people on the council. So earlier this year, we actually got an inclusivity statement put up um, just because I okay, felt, that's good. Um, yeah, I felt like it, we're in a time now where that's kind of more an appropriate thing for us to have. And it would just be nice considering it is one of those ones if we do want to create that space where people should be able to feel like they can come without being judged or worried about their safety. Right. And having an inclusivity statement helps just reinforce that, despite the fact that it is in, like, you know, our kind of rules of things that we have to do to behave and that anybody who, you know, is harmful to students will be made to leave. But just clarifying what that is a little bit more, I think. Right. And there is a big difference between being technically welcome and being explicitly welcome. Yes. So I think especially since um, for one of the classes that I attend, it is in Newtown in Sydney, which is definitely one of, it's, it's like a gay hub in Sydney. There's okay. two, really, and we're in one of them, um, and it's a fantastic place. Um, I really love it, but, yeah, I think considering where we're located, we really couldn't not have one. Um, I mean, we have branches all over Sydney. There's about 10 of them or something now. I should know this, but I don't. Um, <laughs> there's two many. I, 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 I didn't invite you on the show for your advanced knowledge of yeah so um but specifically i think because uh, of where we're located for where i am that's one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about it but also because i i very much would fight for any student who did want to do something who wasn't quite sure or i love people i mean yeah it's just furthering that creating a safe space before they even enter the room to let them know that they're welcome yeah, and it the, the problem with clubs generally 
is they tend to be modeled on the founder, right? Yeah. And like, yeah, so my school for um, a long time, I really struggled to get female students in because, you know, it was a bloke running it. And, yeah. you know, and most of my students in the first you know, six months or so were my sort of age and male. And yeah. it was, it, it took... It took basically a few brave souls to go, ah, but I like swords more than I'm intimidated by a bunch of men to come in. And then to that, that we, we eventually, well, maybe in the first year, got up to about 35% female in my club. Um, That's really good, though. Well, it, but it, it, it was something that I had to, like, really deliberately <laughs> work yeah. on. And it's still, it's still, like, only a, a third. On average, over like the nearly twenty years it's been running, it should be fifty fifty. <laughs> it's better than my current class, so I'm not going to say anything. Though uh, <laughs> okay. it's actually really, it, I don't know. I feel like having one female helps encourage other females. So it really is. Oh sure, Because I have friends who run other schools as well, um, and it's one of those ones of they all talk about the whole like trying to acquire that first female is the hardest step. And um, especially like trying to acquire females who aren't necessarily a partner of somebody who already trains there. Right. So just having yeah. somebody who has been like, no, this is something I want to do. I'm going to go all by myself. And this is something I feel completely comfortable doing kind of thing, or at least willing to check it out. Yeah. And it, it's, it's surprising how big an effect little things can have. Like, for example, um, there's a woman who um, is one of the committee members at a club that I'm involved with in the States. And she just entirely casually mentioned in passing that you know, she was mad, she'd be mad about swords. She got one of my books and in my books, there are pictures of women doing the thing. Right. Yeah. It was just like a deliberate thing from the very beginning in my first book. I made sure that there were women in the pictures and it was, and she said, that that was what made her think, ah, okay, it's not just for blokes. Girls can do it too. And so she showed up and, you know, within a few years she was running the club. <laughs> so then, it's like, yeah, but, but those little tiny things um, can really help. And just, you know, having a woman teaching the class is like super helpful. Um, yeah, it's it's why I try to show up to as many events as I physically can, just because like, yeah, for, there was a while where I was the only girl in my classes. Right. <laughs> and but, I, was, but you, I was pretty okay with that. I do have four brothers and I did grow up with them. I have two older, two younger. Okay. And smack bang in the middle. So for me, it wasn't like well, something yeah. that I felt super intimidated by or upset by, but I didn't realize how much I was missing it until even now I see a new female walk in and I'm like, oh, a girl. Like I get way too excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was actually gonna ask, so you know, so how come you were comfortable doing it? But yeah, you just you've answered the question before yes, I even four, got to four it. brothers and um, you know, there's a couple of things like yeah, as I mentioned, like my dad had taught me some real, real basic stuff. I don't remember literally anything he taught me, but I know that it wasn't the first time I'd held a sword because he'd given me one to play with when I was younger. Um, turns good. out he knows what hot and saber is, and I just sat there dumbfounded when I worked that out after I'd already been doing it. Because um, he sat there and was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." He just said, "Turn to me one day," and I was like, "Oh, there's only six true cuts in that system, isn't there?" And I'm just like looking at him, like, "How do you know the things?" 
Um, turns out I get my nerdiness comes from him, and that makes all the sense in the world. Um, <laughs> but also, at the medieval fairs that I do go to, um, I used to love to watch the jousting. And I think everybody who kind of grew up in my age did, because we all watched A Knight's Tale, and it was awesome. And so we all fell in love with jousting. And the first year I went to go watch, the only female jouster won. And for oh, me, wow. that was such an important thing. Is, and that would have been like... Um, 17 or something and I saw that and for me that was really awesome because that stuck with me like it got to the point where I started to recognize um it is uh Lady Sarah at one point I used to recognize her armor off by heart and one year she changed it and I got really confused because I'm like she mustn't be jousting this year and it turns out she'd updated her kit but um I I, I didn't know Lady Lady Sarah uh okay yeah I don't know she 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 might be a really good it might, she might be a really good, well, I could probably find her from there, but she might be a really good guest for the show. I mean, potentially. I when you said that, because, I mean, you know. It's definitely, you know, a female in, in martial arts. I think they're all, always fabulous to talk to. Um, but, yeah, it was like one of those ones of, it was so cute. I was actually too intimidated to tell her even after I'd started HEMA that, like, I thought she was amazing. So one of my friends did it one time. They, like, ran up to her and told her, and I sat there just turning pink, being like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like several meters away pretending I didn't know my friend it was fine so you have a little crush on Lady Sarah then uh, it was just more of one of those ones of I think when you look up to somebody so incredibly but you don't really know anything about them either so it's not just like oh how's this going like you have no way to pick up a conversation other than like hi I think you're really cool <laughs> like what, what do you do I think I do a little bit better now but, um, yeah, at the time, I was relatively new even to HEMA. So it was like one of those ones of going to a more experienced, like, uh, female who's within, mar- like, specifically, you know, like, uh, medieval or historical martial arts style things. I think I just found that extremely intimidating because I didn't really know, as I said, any other women who did stuff. So I think I just kind of, like, locked onto her as like, look, if she can do that thing and that's a lot scarier than the swords, I should be fine. Like, and you know, there are some people out there who say that representation doesn't matter. I know that confounds me because I'm like, I know it does. I've literally had students come to the class. I've had female students come and be like, "Oh yeah, I saw you at the fair that time, so I thought I'd come along and check it out." So they're liars, damnable liars. <laughs> um, now you mentioned earlier that you are doing a burlesque performance with a longsword. Oh yes. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I quite dare ask the details of the performance, but um, do you find that there's much connection between your performance work and your sword work? I feel like they both weirdly have a lot in similar and then massive differences. So uh, I think awareness of space is very important in both. Um, and I think this routine hilariously just combines that even further because I'm going to be on a stage on Saturday night and I don't, I've never been on this stage before, so I have to go to the tech rehearsal so I can work out how much can I swing this sword before I hit something, like a ceiling or a, another prop or, you know, a, a human. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting at times. I do refer to it uh, currently as my short social distancing measuring stick. Um, so if I can hit them, they <laughs> yeah. are too close. Um, so I find that that's helpful. But, I, yeah, I think that, you know, being aware of your space, uh, understanding not just footwork, but that there's patterns in footwork. 
So obviously something like a, a traditional triangle step that's used quite a lot that we use in longsword, that's a jazz pas de beret. You can go watch West Side Story and I guarantee you'll see one somewhere because it's just that common. Um, not to be confused with a ballet pas de beret. It's very different. It's the other way around. Um, but right. so there, are certain, okay. there are certain things that click for me because I don't actually have much of a dance background. I definitely have a stronger HEMA background than a dance background, but it's always interesting to me to see where certain things are in common because like um, trying to work out different muscle groups that are used, like a lot of the stuff that you do for HEMA is very similar to a lot of the stuff I'll do for dance leg-wise, like for the way that we move, because it shouldn't be linearly a lot of the time. We should make sure that we're stepping offline when we're recovering. So, you know, a lot of the time when we're doing dancing, we're not dancing straight forward and back. It would look very odd. I don't think anybody would pay any money to see that. I think people would throw tomatoes. I don't know if they, again, I, I think they would leave the venue, go find a vegetable stall, buy tomatoes, come back and throw tomatoes at me. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember a long time ago, uh, I took tango lessons because I thought it'd be a great way to meet girls because I was you know, single and what have you. And didn't work terribly well for that, but I really enjoyed the tango lessons. And because, you know, I, I've, I've, I can learn patterns and things, you know, martial arts, I can do forms and footwork and all that. So I picked up the steps really quite quickly. But the thing that really made it all click was when I understood that it's much more like riding a horse than it is like wrestling. Because in riding a horse, in a well-trained horse, you just, on a well-trained horse, you just give the signal and the horse does the thing. And when I figured out that my partner only needed to be given the signal and would then do the thing, I didn't actually have to like put them into a dip. I didn't actually have to throw them uh, over my hip to get them to yeah. do that. I could just give them the signal and they would just do it. And I'd be like, and you know, when I, it took me a couple of lessons. And when I made that, when that thing clicked in my head, I got a lot more popular in the class for certain. Because <laughs> you just stopped trying to <laughs> wrestle the other people. Yes, no, I can imagine that. <laughs> exactly. Although I, I didn't mention the horse analogy because I didn't think it would be, it was, I didn't <laughs> think it would go down very rude. well. I'm, I'm not necessarily the best at my social skills, but even I might question that one. As if yeah, yeah. So I, I had the wit not to mention it in, in the class. But it is. It's, it's a lot more like riding than it is like wrestling. And Yeah, for paired dancing, for sure. That would remind me of like my paired um, like circus stuff that I've done. A lot of it would be like that because I definitely wouldn't want them to like throw me into a position because that would wreak no. all kinds of havoc. But if they like gently lead one way or the other or something, I would kind of be able to tell what they wanted me to do and I'd be able to go, oh my goodness, I'm a horse. Um, <laughs> and I message my friend after yeah. this and let him know. Be like, no, no, it's, you know? it's, it's, it's just useful to find the, the aspects yes. of the thing you've done before that actually fit the thing you're trying to do. Yes, but no, I, I totally get it. And um, I love the fact that you've described it as being you know, like a horse, because I describe everything to my students in bizarre and wonderful ways. Paul calls them Laurenisms. The other day I made something a Laurenism in less than three seconds after he explained it, uh, because uh, I just needed another, uh, to hear it another way. And I found like some students do, like you can tell them and you can explain it perfectly, but it just might not sink in right. So sometimes just explaining it another way, they're like, oh, that makes sense. So I can't remember what we were doing. I might be able to reverse engineer it from what I said. 
I think I said it was like the reverse hokey pokey because we were just like <laughs> taking <Okay. laughs> Because we must have been going completely out from whatever we did. I think we were throwing a cut, but slipping. And I was trying to explain it to newer students. And, rather, and obviously, when I first teach students, I'm trying to teach them to step forward when they cut. So the idea of stepping back when they cut was probably something, you know, that was really weird. Um, they like they'd finally started building up the like they in like proper reaction of okay, I'm going to cut, and I'm, then I'm going to like step partway through that so that way everything lands correctly. So the idea of then getting contradicting like information about what they're supposed to do on a cut, I think just broke them a little bit because they were so new. Um, so yeah, I just find really weird ways to explain stuff. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I think I am both a wonderful and unusual. It's that whole like weird and wonderful thing I've got happening. So um, yeah, as I mentioned, I uh, say that, you know, when I'm teaching the eight basic cuts for something like broadsword, I refer to them as pizza cuts because they're quite similar to the way you cut a pizza. Yeah, but I just never heard it explained that way before. Um, and I didn't need it because I learned it the traditional way. I learned it the grown-up way. Um, but I thought of it like earlier this year and I said it to one or two students and I found that I could teach the cuts faster. They retained the information like much better between lessons, a whole range of things. And it was just like ridiculous how much it helped some students when they were first starting out. So I come up with many many weird things and yeah i think yeah, I'm just I mean, gonna... my, my view is you, you need as many different ways of explaining things as you have different students yeah well I sometimes like... i'll ask students if they have a dance background because if they do sometimes it means depending on the type of dance they've done they prefer to watch me do footwork from behind because that's right. the only way yeah. their brain will pick it up so stuff like that where i will try and gauge the person and ask weird questions and just work out how do they best learn? And it does mean that sometimes I have to explain the one thing in many different weird ways, but we usually find one that helps. Yeah, it's like when I was learning to drive, um, the hardest part about the control of a car is the clutch control, usually. Um, for those of us who use stick, for uh, yes, we call it manual, Americans call it stick. Um, <clears throat> and my mum's a piano teacher, so she tried to teach me clutch control by listening to the pitch of the engine. Which made perfect oh, wow. sense to her, and I it just did not work for me at all. And no, this, this it would not work for me either. No, and this 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 chap was visiting, um, and he ended up giving me a driving lesson. I can't remember exactly why, but just how it worked out. And he explained the mechanics of how a clutch actually works. You know, the two plates right. that come together yeah. and what have you. So and I was like, how- oh, oh, okay. And literally, I had, I had reasonably good clutch control 10 minutes later yeah because you understood the mechanics behind it exactly so i needed the mechanics explanation the listen to the pitch of the engine thing just didn't work for me at all um yeah so yeah and the same is true with teaching pretty much anything you know if it's if the explanation sort of fits how your brain is already trained to work then makes things clearer and if it doesn't then it's yeah. just another layer of difficulty you're adding on top of the the existing difficulty I find well I love as uh, I, I really don't care what people think when because I know that some people look at me funny when I say all my weird Laurenisms but I love so much the idea of just helping make it more accessible for even one person because we're very lucky that we live now in an age where we can easily find 
many different manuals on the internet um, and a lot of, you know, people in HEMA have done extra hard work to make them physically accessible. So you can download a PDF and congratulations, you know, there's plenty that you can get. I know I've downloaded a couple from different websites and schools, but uh, I don't, I struggle sometimes reading ye old manuals. I'm not, I'm not the only person out oh. there who can say that. Hilariously, well, I can I read Shakespeare like it's English and that's fine, but I struggle with manuals, which to me makes no sense. I would have thought that my brain would be fine. But I think it's because I need to physically like write down now what I think it means to help. But um, yes, as, as accessible as it is for the information out there now, I think we now just need to work on translating that into things that people will be able to understand. And I think that's such an important part of like what we do as like teachers and assistant teachers and just other people in HEMA who have more experience in general. Yeah. And yeah, you're not alone finding the, the manuals difficult. I mean, they are generally not written for us. They are. <laughs> and, and, and that, that comes across really, really clearly when you know, often they're referring to an assumed body of knowledge that we just don't have or we have had to acquire through other means. Um, so um, do you do any of the languages or are you, are you just dealing with English manuals? Uh, mostly British um, swordsmanship. I have done some uh, Iberian greatswords or I did some Figaro dos Montante for a while. Um, and that's been translated really well into English, but it's also so literal and it doesn't talk very often about, because there's no pictures for it. Um, and you kind of have to try and guess for certain parts if you haven't seen somebody else do it, what you think it is. Or even then, I know I interpret certain parts different to how I've seen certain other people interpret different things. So it's just interesting to see how that works because I did sit down and go through uh, all the simple plays to see what I thought they were. And um, then only after I really looked at them, went to YouTube to look up and see what was, a, if there was a general consensus about what they are and how on or off track I was with those. Okay. And how close were you? Most of them were fine because with the simple plays, they are just that. So it's just like, you know, throw in the right foot and do a talho or rivers, you know, things like that, where it's just like, okay, cool, you know, or it'll describe what you're doing. I love that the plays are named after certain things, like, um, you know, the way that you're supposed to, like, defend a bridge or a river or different things. So when you kind of have that image in mind, I think it helps you work out a lot of the real simple ones. I think it's only the way that I bring mostly the sword after I do, like, a, a descending blow from my right shoulder and bring it around to... My left ear, I think I do that a bit differently to some other people. But it's not, I don't know, I don't think I necessarily... So, I, you know, I've, I've done joint locks on you, and I can tell you that your shoulders do work a bit differently to most people. <laughs> yes, which is why I have to also, anytime I do stuff like this, hand it to another person and be like, do this and tell me if you feel pain. If you feel pain, it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, now I have a couple of questions that I tend to... Um, finish up with and the first is what's the best idea you've never acted on Ooh. see that's a good question um, I'd say probably from a performer's point of view mm -hmm. 
I once wanted to start up a theatre company, but I kind of almost kept waiting for permission because I was supposed to start it with a friend. And it kind of just kept being delayed because I really wanted to produce stuff. It's one of the easiest ways in Sydney to kind of like be in a show is to put one on. Um, a lot of people I know who do stuff have started from small things like that. And yeah, because I kept kind of waiting for this other person rather than just taking the initiative, I think that was probably something I haven't done. But in my everyday life, I think for me, it's usually like affection. Like I'm not, as I've mentioned, not necessarily great at social things. And I I struggle sometimes to know when it's appropriate to like hug someone. So okay. <laughs> I feel like occasionally I've missed out on some awesome hugs. <laughs> That's, that's really interesting. Um, and so the best idea you've never acted on is hugging Hugs. someone. <laughs> Probably. Okay. All right. No, no. And, and, you know, there aren't many things in life more important than hugs. So that's, that's so what are you going to do about that? Um, well, we're still currently in a pandemic, so I can't really hug anyone. So True. Wait, wait for the pandemic to end or get vaccines or however – um, I do then plan to travel, and I know several of my international friends who I've never even met in real life who would be dying for a good hug. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I, I call her my Welsh twin, but Esther, uh, who goes to the Academy of Historical Fencing, um, we're basically, we joke saying that we're either twins or I call her sometimes my Hema wife, um, stuff like that because we are really close and it's like weird because we miss each other but we've never physically met each other um oh, wow. so yeah there are lots of lots of hugs to be had hugs and castles excellent. hugs and castles okay excellent that's what i'm looking forward to uh, in wales okay so you actually so your 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 welsh sword wife is actually in wales okay cool yes in this case you'll be coming through london um which is only a couple of hours from where I live. So maybe I can catch up with you in London and give you a hug there. I reckon. Excellent. Okay. So last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Oh, so many things I want to do. Okay. I think part of it is change its look a little bit. I think okay. most of the promotions we see even now, they're still mostly done with middle-aged white dudes in them. And, you know, you I love me. a lot of them. A lot of them are my good friends. A lot of them, you know, I, I adore you. Uh, but but it would love to, I'd love to see something with more diversity in it, something that concentrates more on not necessarily just the, who's a bunch of dudes fighting? Aren't we awesome? Like, so I feel like I don't know how you'd do that. I don't know how you'd talk. Like, even if you created it with a beautiful, diverse thing, how you'd then advertise that to the masses uh, to try and draw people in. But you know what? If it works, it works. And I think maybe the other thing is just finding ways to be, yeah, I don't know. I'll say fun myself a little bit because I do want to start a YouTube channel where I do try and break down a lot of how stuff works and why it works. We do have a lot of wonderful videos already available. But I don't know. I think I would like to just talk about how, like, why stuff works. Um, I do I mean, talk often about the mechanics of why we do certain things in sword. I will never tell anybody do it because, this way because I said so. Um, yeah. And I feel like a lot of that stuff only really gets talked about at workshops. I know, having been okay. to workshops, 
Um, so stuff like the ground path, which, you know, we get the terminology from that from you. Uh, <laughs> pretty much that's how we've, we've ended up with that. Um, I will always explain that to my students and I take the time to do that, despite the fact that I often get like this look of like, why are we not throwing cuts right now? We could be fighting. But explaining to them why it works as a principle, it means that I can literally ask them what they did wrong later and they know oh, that like, they can self-correct better. Because even if you record them, give it to them, they can be like, oh, I didn't do this or I did do that. So I think just... Yeah, I, I I remember teaching Paul Wagner the idea of ground paths back in, I think it was at one of the WMAWs in Wisconsin and the look on his face. And he was like, Oh, that's so cool. And he just suddenly yes. started applying it to all of his stuff. And then when I came to yes. Australia a year or so later, you know, there, there he was actually, you know, using it all the time. I yes. Thought, which yes. I get it from him because he, he is in, you know, my teacher. So I've picked it up from him. So I explain it to all my students. So it has a legacy now you've, you've done something. <laughs> That's the oh, other cool. side of the globe. It's spreading. Um, okay. But you're still sitting on a pile of like a million. A million. Well, we've made an advertising. Australian. Um, I don't know, maybe helping uh, people who might need, Stuff for, oh, I'm trying to explain this and I'm doing it in a really bad way. Um, I feel like a lot of HEMA right now is a little bit ableist. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel like trying to help people who might not be, you know, either in the best fighting form or they might have other reasons why they're struggling with cert, like to be able to do something, you know, necessarily as capable as others, um, find ways to potentially help them because, um, uh, where I do Lyra, we have uh, the owner and the one of the instructors, she's deaf. Okay. So that's been really interesting, have, having her as a teacher, because I've had to learn some sign so that way I can communicate with her in class. Um, and it's like one, of those, one of those things that makes me just very aware, because we have had um, also in the classes that I've attended uh, where I do my aerials, uh, we've had one or two deaf students and they've had somebody there to translate for them. And I've thought how wonderful that is of an idea, but also is there a way we can be doing something to help, you know, people who are differently abled? Um, or I don't know what the politically correct term is. Um, but also I think we rely so much on this idea of like, you have to be at like peak fitness to be able to do everything. And that's not me. Right. I am also not the best fighter in the world. So I don't know, maybe I'd try and, do things to try and show humor something other than like this sportified thing that it often appears as for, you know, like halfway between boat hurt and Olympic fencing. I'd like to think we're a bit more than that. We are definitely a, quite a community. And I think that's a large part of why I love it so much because I love so many of the people in it. And yeah, I think just making it appear more friendly and just giving voices to those who, you know, would otherwise go unheard. So potentially funding, other people's projects and things, you know, having, or what is it? Um, we have the Australasian Western Martial Arts Convention in Sydney that we normally hold every year or two. And obviously it couldn't go ahead this year, but there's a couple instructors that we'd love to get that we just don't know whether or not we'd be able to. So maybe helping, you know, fund teachers being able to go overseas and teach at places they might not be able to because the school can't afford it or things like that. So just finding ways to help help spread the good word of HEMA. Um. <laughs> yeah, I like, you know, th this podcast is completely useless to deaf people, obviously. Um, although, 
you know, we are providing transcriptions, which are going up slowly on my website, um, which I hadn't actually thought of that as a way of making the podcast more more approachable to deaf people. But of course, it actually is. Um, yeah. But one one thing I do know that there have been blind fences in the past. Um, yeah. And in fact, one of the best wrestlers I ever met was completely blind. Um, because you know, with wrestling, if you can start with contact, you don't exactly. really need to see. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would love to find a way of making, um, like medieval swordsmanship because it is so fucking cool, making it available to people who are well. Blind is a good starting point, right? Because that's that's. Yeah. I've had wheelchair students, and they are. You know, it's, it's actually quite straightforward to figure out what they can do because they will just tell you what they can do, and then you put a sword in their hands, and they they grin a lot, and then you figure out how they can swing it around <laughs> with that. You know, and you know, you, it, it's it's not easy, but it's relatively straightforward. But how yeah. do you make a how do you make a room full of blind people holding long swords, or even just a room full of people where there's maybe I don't know ten percent of them are blind? How do you make that a safe and useful training environment for everyone? That yeah. actually, that, it, that could be a really interesting concept. But it's one of those ones of obviously you kind of need to get those people in the room and kind of be like, this is a thing I want to work on. Do you want to help me with it? Which for all those kinds of things is, yeah, as I said, something a million dollars could go towards, you know, startup capital to run, you know, interest groups and to try and workshop things and work out what, different people's limitations realistically are because obviously when you, you see people doing quite a lot of um, some some styles of fencing, I'll put it, uh, often involve having the swords actually touch to start with and from there you can feel pressure. Right. So I feel yeah. like that's that could potentially be a starting point for people um, who don't necessarily have sight because then they can kind of use pressure and see what's happening with their um, and, you know, obviously starting with more linear systems and then building out from there being like, okay, well, you know, th that's something that we feel is fairly obvious uh, as a way yeah, for something they can learn. But when can we yeah. So, but I think having something basic like that as an under knowledge of like, cool, if, if you have that as the base knowledge to build from, what can they do on top of that? Because from... From small sword, I feel like you could then build up to something like spadroon because then you're starting to throw cuts in there. Yeah. Um, and then it would be one of those ones that I feel like it would have to vary. I'm not sure whether or not people would be able to start with something like a long sword from the get-go, but it might be worth looking at. But, yeah, it's something that we just – we haven't done the research on, so we're not quite sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've done quite a bit of blindfold fencing, but obviously that's not the same because, uh, on the one hand, it's – you know, I don't have the experience of, of being blind. And so when I can't see because I've got a blindfold on, I, I, I'm not used to that. That by itself is disorienting. Whereas if, you know, if you're actually blind, then you've, you've gotten used to that in certain ways. You're, you're not relying on sight for balance. It's a natural state. Yeah. Yeah. So you're more attuned to your environment through other senses, that sort of thing. So so, okay, if any blind person is listening to this and you're interested in this as a problem, then please do get in touch and um, we'll see if we can work together and do something to actually make historical martial arts more accessible to blind people. That'd be marvellous. Good idea? 
but we don't I, have a million dollars, so we have to. We have to. Yes. We have to, <laughs> we're have to, we're gonna have to do it on a shoestring. Community. <laughs> I'm sure right, they'd be yeah. other people would be happy to get behind and help. But yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. Although we didn't actually get like any much in the way of specifics on how we're going to spend your million dollars, Lauren. We did yeah, come up with a good idea. Wonderful ideas, but it's also I think if I had it, I'd have to be like, oh, all right. So what are ones that we could practically accomplish? Because I have so many things I'd want to do. Um, I want to have grants so that way, uh, you know, we'd be able to. What is it? Um, uh, like, uh, yeah, I would love to see more female teachers traveling. I feel like for a lot of female teachers, they're held back often either because, you know, one reason or another, either there's a more senior male teacher or because they have family that they have obligations to or other things like that where they take on quite traditional roles either in a house or otherwise that they don't feel like they can kind of like drop as easily to be able to do that. So maybe funding for, you know, just all representation in general for people who don't have it because as I said, as much as I love my middle-aged white guys in HEMA, I'd love, love, love to see <laughs> see more <laughs> diversity because I, I haven't seen that many people of different diversity because in Sydney we're much of a much and I, you know, I encourage that as much as possible. So flying people around, advertising, making us seem more cheerful and community-based rather than necessarily a sporting thing. I feel like that would be a start. Well, I think that'd be a great way to spend the money. Well, I reckon. Oh, and also bringing back stuff like maybe having um, uh, training up people to do like sword making and stuff, so we can start making things at a cheaper cost. So, or you know, helping teach people who are interested sewing, so that way that we can help with you know making cheaper gambesons or making it more accessible to places that aren't. Because it's really hard to get kit in Australia. Sure. And everything's so expensive because postage is evil. Um, so often it will cost the same amount for the product as it will to ship it. Um, and that's just a little bit sad sometimes. So maybe it's all my selfish wish wishful thinking, but that's – I both want a lot and can't specify all of it. Okay. Well, maybe you need more than a million dollars. Maybe. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, Lauren. That's been a delight. That's all good. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Lauren. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you really care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. Patreon.com forward slash The Sword Guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Callum Forbes about jousting in New Zealand. Don't want to miss that one. It's a corker. So you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. See you next week.